as was the case uh, last Sunday, so also with the sermon today, this is what we call an occasional sermon. That is, it's not part of a series, but it's, uh, it's a sermon that uh, stands on its own, so to speak, in terms of uh, the life of our church, uh, as we will begin very soon to consider the nomination process and election of new elders and deacons. And so in that context, uh, please open your Bible or one of the pew Bibles to the Apostle Paul's letter to Titus for the reading of God's own God-breathed word in Titus chapter 1. Let us seek the Lord's blessing. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word of truth preserved for us in Holy Scripture, and we pray that your Holy Spirit, who breathed out this word for us, will now breathe upon us afresh and open our minds with spiritual understanding and insight, and grant us grace, O Lord, to receive what you say and to respond in joyful, obedient faith. To the glory of your name, amen. Let us hear the word of God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. To his name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Well, how about that sermon title? I made it up to generate all kinds of excitement among the congregation. Well, I'm making, I'm making fun of myself, but I think you will see after we get into this text that the, the subject of church government is uh, vitally important to the life of the church of Jesus Christ. I just mentioned that the session uh, is beginning that process. The session has formed the committee, which will begin the 
process of seeking out members to nominate as elders and deacons, and you, the congregation members, are invited to suggest names. You'll be hearing more about that, and the uh, election will take place in October, and so in that light, we are looking at these opening verses of Paul's letter to Titus, which has to do with um, the appointment of elders in every town on the island of Crete, which Titus was overseeing. But look at the context here. Look how Paul begins uh, this letter. Paul, a servant of God, and by servant there, identifying himself as a servant, Paul is identifying himself as Moses was identified, as David was identified, as the prophets of the Old Testament was identified. The Apostle Paul is there identifying himself as an authenticated spokesperson for God, an authoritative spokesperson and an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who has been commissioned and sent forth to preach the word of God and to establish the church of Jesus Christ. And he writes, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul understands now that the gospel has come, Christ has come, Christ has lived, died, been raised from the dead and ascended on high, the Holy Spirit has been poured out, and now the revelation of the gospel is that God's elect are no longer identified by lineal descent, by hereditary descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's no no longer a matter of ethnic identity, no matter, uh, no longer a matter of being uh, defined and identified by keeping certain old covenant ritual laws. But now the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals that God's elect are all those from every tribe and tongue and nation who place their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and enter the kingdom of God and become members of the covenant people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect. The Apostle Paul understands that God's decree of election is at work in, it is becoming effective in, it is taking hold of real people through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel goes forth in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit effectively calls people, works saving faith in them, draws them to Jesus Christ, unites them to Jesus Christ, and brings them into life everlasting in Union with Jesus Christ. That is the basis for Paul's apostolic missionary work of evangelism. Paul knows without doubt that God is at work by the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to call his elect people to saving faith in Jesus Christ out of all the peoples of the earth, out of all the nations of the world. And by the way, that's the great fulfillment of the promise to Abraham In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so it's for the sake of the redemption of the world and the salvation of people from every tribe and tongue and nation that Paul goes about his work and writes this letter to Titus for the sake of the faith of God's elect 
and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That's an important element. The Apostle Paul understands that God's people must know the truth and walk according to it. Right knowledge and right living. Knowledge, truth, and godliness must go together. And this life that we live to the glory of God, enjoying God and glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, is lived out in the hope of eternal life. Life now connected to the life to come, a life of lived in truth and godliness with a view toward the hope of glory. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. That's what Paul is all about in this letter to Titus. And we see that the first point he makes when he gets into the body of the letter has to do with the establishment, the ordination of elders in every town for every congregation on the island of Crete. Let's break it down and notice some things that I think will connect with us in our life here today. Let's think of the big idea, knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, that is a very controversial idea in the culture in which we live. Think about it. Think about this. This verse asserts that there is such a thing as truth. The truth. Which can be known and can be applied to our lives. It's very basic. It's foundational to the Christian faith. But do you understand that we don't live in a culture and our children and our grandchildren are not growing up in a culture which believes that there is such a thing as the truth? Really and truly. In our culture, the intellectual, the social, philosophical, moral forces of the day Reject the idea of truth. Anything that could be called the truth. You know, as Pilate jeered at Jesus. Pilate, the consummate politician. (laughs) You know, I imagine Pilate taking a long drag on his cigarette, blowing the smoke in Jesus' face and saying... What is truth? Because in our American culture, the academic world, the intellectual world, the powers of the media, truth is whatever I define as truth, what I perceive in my own experience. And you define truth as you perceive it in your own experience. So truth is whatever we come up with that works for us. And by the way, right and left, left and right, these days truth is just a matter of how you spin it 
It's just a matter of how you spin it so you get the result that you want. In Titus 1, this is a radically countercultural statement. As Christians, we are called to a knowledge of the truth. The scripture teaches us that there is the truth to be known, revealed truth, and therefore it must be known in order for us to live godly lives, knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, right thinking, right acting, and again, the ultimate goal. We live out this life according to the truth because our hearts are set on the hope of eternal life. Paul says boldly what is at stake. He writes with a view of that ultimate goal and the ultimate destination of God's people in Christ, eternal life. So everything that follows in this letter, including the instruction about elders, church government, is written with a view of the hope of glory, eternal life through Jesus Christ. So to that end, for the sake of the faith, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, for the sake of their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, for the sake of their hope of eternal life. The Apostle Paul left Titus in Crete so that he might finish the work which Paul had begun, so that Titus might put what remained, the work remaining to be done, into order. That is to say, get things squared away, get things finished up. And the first thing left for Titus to do was to appoint elders in every town as Paul directed him. Now this is... Uh, not unique in the letter of Titus. If you read through the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, you'll see that over and over again in the missionary journeys when Paul and uh, his companions went and preached the gospel, they were not simply or merely itinerant evangelists going, you know, having an evangelistic crusade, having people make commitments of faith to Jesus Christ, and then they move on. No. They were church planters over and over and over and over again. We read in the book of Acts. Paul and his companions preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit works in the hearts of the elect, draws them to faith in Jesus Christ. A church is formed and they appoint elders to oversee the body. It's basic. The first century New Testament Christianity. Elders in this passage are also referred to as overseers. It's another word for an elder. And there were various congregations on the island of Crete and congregations in various towns needed order. The churches in these towns needed order, leadership, structure. It was foundational, necessary, vital for the prospering of healthy, faithful churches in Crete and in all the other churches that Paul planted. And if that's true then and there, it's still true here and now. And I want you to see that this is a picture of, now think of the words that we use. Just think of the words. Congregation. That means to be gathered together with. A group of people aggregated, congregated as one. 
a community of believers, a common unity, common unity, community of people in a shared bond of faith, in a bond of life together, put into an ordered structure under the word of God through the leadership and oversight of elders who have the responsibility to teach sound doctrine, to refute false doctrine, and to rebuke, and to discipline, and to restore those who disturb the peace and purity and unity of the church. And in the following passage, beginning at verse 10, Paul does go on to say that there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, etc. So Paul knows that the life of the church can be troubled and disrupted, and the structure of elders overseeing a congregation is intended to protect the congregation from such division and false teaching. But now what I want you to think about is the fact that this picture of a covenanted community bonded together under the authority of Scripture through the leadership and oversight of elders is in fact, again, a very countercultural picture for us today, counter to the culture in which we live, counter to the church culture of America today. In, a, in American culture in general, there's a wholesale disregard or there's a disinterest in, disinterest in in fact, a, a resistance toward anything that looks like organized or institutionalized religion. You know, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Right? We hear that all the time. Oh, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I really don't need to go to church. I'm a Christian, but I'm not a member of a church. Well, most of this resistance to organized institutional religion ultimately rises out of that same culture of relativism which denies the reality of truth. The two go hand in hand because if there is no truth other than the truth which I perceive for myself according to work, what works for me, then what need have I for any other authoritative truth that would come from beyond myself? Do you see the point? Okay? So again, it's the culture of relativism that resists any sense of authority or transcendence or structures Anything that reveals or teaches me the truth other than myself. It's our mood, our mindset today is very individualistic and very anti-authoritarian. And, and so we have this idea that we could create for ourselves a kind of structureless Christianity. Live as a Christian as though there were no God-ordained structure of authority and accountability and oversight for faith and doctrine and life. And it I believe, is uh, one of the great weaknesses of American Christianity. But again, we see from Paul's letters, from the book of Acts, from the letter to Titus, that the congregations planted by Paul and built up by others such as Titus and Timothy, these congregations were not willy-nilly associations 
of uncommitted and disconnected people who are just doing their own thing by attending the church of their choice. And I, I realize that's kind of basic to American culture today, but that's not what these churches were. Paul is concerned that the Christians in Crete understand that true Christian faith is not some nilly-willy, do-your-own-thing, spirituality, free-for-all. They were a covenanted community, a body of believers bounded by the promises of God, bound to one another, living together, worshiping together, serving the Lord together, under the authoritative leadership, oversight, teaching, and discipline of elders. You often hear me say that though we are a long-established congregation, at the same time we're really quite a new congregation, and we are a congregation that is in the process of becoming. And the congregation we want to become is a congregation which reflects the principles and the truths that are revealed in Scripture And that is as a congregation of people who are bound together as the Lord's people and who are led together under the pastoral oversight of the elders. Now, before we look at each specific qualification of uh, elders listed in this particular passage, let's keep in mind the, the overall Picture. Paul is enumerating in this passage some of the specific qualifications of elders. You also have a list of qualifications for elder and deacon in his first letter to Timothy. But these are not merely, these are not theoretical. These are because of the real needs of the church, the need for, for godly example, the need for sound teaching, the need for strong leadership, trustworthy leadership. In contrast to the sinful character of the culture, the false teaching that always threatens the church, the deceitful and manipulative ways of those who um, would seek to divide the church. Every attribute which Paul specifies is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. That's how important this is. He says in verse 9 that elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So first on the list is sound doctrine. I'm thankful to be a member of a denomination in which I am held accountable by very clear doctrinal standards, the elders and the deacons are as well. And I'm accountable to this church session. Um, and so we have a process, even in our, in our Christian education program, everything that's taught must be approved by the session, must be over, overseen. This is for the sake of guarding and guiding what is taught in the life of this church. When the Apostle Paul writes that elders or overseers uh, must be above reproach, he does not mean that an elder must be sinlessly perfect. That would immediately disqualify everyone and be of no use. Above reproach refers to a man's consistent character, general reputation, 
as observed by members of the church, the public in general, above reproach means the elder's personal reputation, public reputation, would not bring shame, disgrace to the name of Christ or to Christ's people in the congregation. And although we all, every one of us, is called to follow Christ in faithful obedience in this way, it is the special obligation of elders to set that godly example before the congregation and the world. Someone whose general pattern of life sets a worthy example, though not perfect, an example of Christian faithfulness. Paul then refers to uh, elders, an elder or overseer being the husband of one wife, and that is a, a, a little bit of an ambiguous English translation. Literally, it reads a one-woman man, and I think that's the big idea. And I, I think it helps with our understanding. A one-woman man, and above all, therefore, It refers to men about whom it would be said consistently, quote, he is completely devoted to his wife. Everyone who knows him knows that he loves his wife, cares for his wife, attends to his wife, and has eyes only for his wife, period. So an elder must be a man, practically speaking, about whom there is absolutely no question about his character in relation to other women. Again, this should be true of all Christian men, of course. But again, it's especially incumbent upon elders to set the godly example for the flock. Now, you know, questions arise, and I'm not going to dive deeply into them. Does this, does this, in its original historical context, have to do with polygamy? Maybe, but, but maybe not. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence that polygamy was a, uh, a major issue, even in the pagan culture of, of uh, the first century of, for early Christianity. Um, does it, uh, does it uh, speak to the issues of divorce and marriage? Yes, on a case-by-case basis. But Paul's not here really addressing. I mean, there are implications and there are applications. But I think the main point here The big idea, again, is that a one-woman man is a man who honors his marriage and the marriages of others and who can be trusted to act within appropriate boundaries in relationship to other women in the life of the church. And from that, yes, follows all kinds of implications and applications. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Well, the qualification shows that the elder likewise gives priority to his family and the nurture and discipline of his own children in order to lead them in the way of the Lord. Most of us, somewhere along the way in our own lives, uh, may have gone through some rocky periods of childhood and youth, and sometimes our children pay us back for that. But is the man committed to his family? Is he a family man? Is he attentive to his children? Is he nurturing? Is he, is he giving appropriate discipline? Is he loving them? Is he leading them in the way of the Lord? And if a man's child has absolutely run off the rails, as this 
passage indicates. Then, of course, there are questions about his suitability as uh, an overseer of the church because look at this. Look real carefully here. We're going to connect some dots. After the point about being above reproach, general character, the first two things that are mentioned are marriage and children. Family. Family, family, family on the, on the priority list. Why is that? Well, it's because the church is a family. And as Paul says elsewhere, In his letter to Timothy, if a man doesn't know how to manage his household, how can he manage God's household? That's the point. And so if we don't want rampant unbelief, rebellion, insubordination, and debauchery while living in the church, we'd better not have men as elders whose children are like that. So love, care, nurture, protection, instruction, discipline in the home, This is what elders, teaching elders, pastors, and ruling elders are to provide. And this is what it means to do the work of an overseer. Stewards in the ancient world had responsibility for the peace and order of the home. They were empowered. They had the authority to maintain the peace and order of the home. They made sure that the members of the family were fed and clothed and cared for. That is the same for Pastors, teaching elders, ruling elders who are stewards of God's household. The other attributes, he must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. I think you see the point. The elder must be a man who can be trusted to relate to others in a Christ-like manner, setting an example For the other believers. Are we perfect in these things? Of course not. Of course not. Who is sufficient for these things? Is there evidence of these qualities in our life? Is there evidence of these qualities in our life? There should be. And you, the members of this congregation, ought to take that very seriously. When you suggest names to the officer nominating committee, when you vote your conscience in congregational officer elections. Why is church government important? The word of God tells us. Church government is important for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which has been purchased for God's people by the blood of of Jesus Christ. That's why it matters. Because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that we might be redeemed from our sins, set free from the curse, and live forever as God's people. To the glory of his name, amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word of truth, your word of grace, your word of direction and guidance for us. And we pray that by 
the power of the Holy Spirit, you might so continue to persevere and work in our lives that we all would grow together into that full spiritual maturity which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, to the glory of your name. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith. As we say, the Philippian Creed based on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2. Christians in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Praise to God the Father.